wonderful. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see familiar faces, some visitors, theology students in the house. Good to see you. Um, this morning, what we're going to be doing is continuing our series on biblically, uh, sorry, on the value statement of this church. And particularly this morning, we'll be coming to Second Timothy chapter three, particular focus on verses sixteen and seventeen, looking at biblically based learning. What I might do first is I might begin in prayer, um, acknowledging the fact that without the illuminating Spirit of God, uh, we would have no knowledge of what these scriptures even say to us. And so would you join with me now as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity, this blessed opportunity to gather here together, your people here in Blackheath, your servants of your word. Lord, we acknowledge that you alone are the author of our salvation, the author of life and death. Lord, we humbly proclaim that your word is truth. Sanctify us in your truth. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So as we continue this current series, as I was stating earlier, we'll be looking at biblically-based learning. And might I say that this particular value is the foremost value of this church. And I say that unashamedly and unapologetically. For two reasons in particular. One, because uh, when this church gathered to formulate this value statement uh, about half a decade ago, this was... Uh, settled as the number one value that this church holds. But on top of that, and, and arguably of more importance, this particular value must be the number one value of any church which wishes to consider itself biblical, orthodox and inherently Christian. It must be the number one value. John MacArthur so candidly explains to us why this is the case. He says... Quote, no church, institution, organisation or movement can rightly claim to honour God if it does not simultaneously honour his word. Anyone who claims a reverence for the King of Kings must joyfully embrace his revelation and submit to his commands. Anything less constitutes rebellion against his lordship and receives his expressed displeasure. To disregard or distort the word is to show disrespect and disdain for its author. To deny the veracity of the Bible's claims is to call God a liar. And to reject the inerrancy of Scripture is to offend the spirit of truth who inspired it. And so this same high view of Scripture that, uh, that we see is the same one that is so eloquently and profoundly proclaimed by Paul here at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll be looking particularly at verses 16 and 17 is where our main exposition will lie, but I'll be giving the contextual backdrop from verses 14 and 15 too. And so if you'd like to turn to, uh, to that passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3 in your pew Bibles or, or in your Bibles yourself, I'll give you a moment to turn there now.
So verses 16 and 17, this is the word of the Lord. Hear it now. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here ends the reading of the Lord this morning. So what I would like to do first and foremost is, is preface this with verses 14 and 15. Um, what, 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 he's, uh, what Paul is particularly doing here, as we'll see, is he's telling Timothy something which he already knew. So if you'd like to now follow along in verses 14 and 15 with me. Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation uh, through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you see uh, at the starting point that, he, that Timothy already knows this, what you have already firmly believed. He already knows these things. So why is Paul telling him something which he already knows? Well, I think uh, the reason is, is twofold. Firstly, because he's encouraging him and he's reminding him of the, one of the essentials of the Christian faith, namely the doctrine of the scriptures. Such a doctrine is of pivotal importance not only to our personal lives but in, in regard to any ministry that we're engaged in. Obviously Timothy being a pastor in Ephesus, this is the absolute core, the cornerstone, the foundation, the very pillar of his ministry is the scriptures. Everything he does as a minister of the word is predicated on the word. And so this very foundation he's being encouraged in and reminded of, this eternal truth. And why would that be the case? Well, because without scripture, folks, we know nothing about God. We know nothing particularly of Christ. We know nothing of his incarnation into the likeness of man. We know nothing of his sinlessly perfect life, keeping every jot and tittle of the law on our behalf. We know nothing of his substitutionary atonement on the cross on our behalf. We know nothing of his resurrection and so on and so on. All of these things are revealed to us through the scriptures. This is how we know our God. And so this is why it is worthwhile to be reminded and encouraged in such things. And secondly, as I, as I touched on earlier, because Timothy needs to know how this truth applies to his life and his ministry. You see, Timothy's just beginning the race. Timothy's probably around the age of 30 at the, at the time of this writing. Paul, however, has run the race well. He's at the end. This is not long before he uh, is sentenced and imprisoned in Rome and then put to death. He can see the finish line, Paul can. And so he's, uh, with decades of, of wisdom, decades of walking with the Lord, he's in, uh, delivering or imparting this knowledge and this wisdom to the younger Timothy now just setting out on the race. And this is why, you know, as parents or as older, um, as older senior members of this church, it is a valuable thing to impart your acquired wisdom to the younger generation. Whether it be your own children or other younger members of this congregation. And so this is precisely what Paul happens to be doing here. He is telling Timothy, in essence, 
what he himself learnt from Christ. It's no different. It's no different. And so it is in verses 16 and 17 then that we see that he, in rather masterful fashion, teaches us three things. And I have put these up so that you may know what I'm talking about. First of all, he, through verses 16 and 17, tells us what the Bible is. He then goes on to deliver what the Bible is for and then what it finally does. Inherently, it's a description or a proclamation of its nature, its qualities and its usefulness in the space of about two verses. And so now what we'll do is we'll go through these two verses extracting the, the very rich truths that lie within. So we see first off in, in the beginning of verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. This, this is an automatic, undeniable claim for the inerrancy of scripture. The word inerrancy meaning without error. A pillar of the Christian faith, to say the least. In the Greek it reads, pasta graphe theonustas, pasta all graphe words or writings, they are nystos, God breathed. It's a very literal rendering because it's exactly what Paul aimed to encapsulate here. And the doctrine of what's called plenary verbal inspiration, which I'll go on to adequately define, and it is helpful to know this, otherwise I wouldn't be saying it, is what's communicated here. So let's look at this, at this first word, plenary. Plenary just simply means all. This is where we get that word, uh, pasta, all. Okay? And here he's making reference to all, as I just said, or every. It doesn't particularly matter which way you render that word because ultimately it says the same thing. He's saying, Paul is saying that all scripture, if you render it that way, and there's good reason for why we translate it all, all scripture is God-breathed. Every single uh, part, the whole, the totality, the entirety of scripture is God-breathed. It's sourced from the very mouth of God. Or even if you were to render it every, it's still saying every part of Scripture in its individual uh, setting is God-breathed. So we see that it's the totality of Scripture that is God-breathed. This eliminates any sense of cherry-picking, any sense of partial inspiration. Uh, it eliminates the possibility for someone to say, well, yes, of course I believe that Jesus is God, but I don't really believe that Adam and Eve were literal historical figures. I don't really believe that there was a worldwide flood in the time of Noah. I don't really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. And you can go on and on and on and on with whatever you may not happen to like about Scripture. This one word eliminates all of that. You either take 100% of Scripture or you deny 100% of scripture. There is no middle ground. The second word, verbal, where we, uh, where we get all scripture, graphe, the words, the writings. Uh, this, you know, this particular point is, is emulating the concept that the Bible is inspired not because it inspires me. That's a view that's sometimes held, that scripture is inspired because it inspires me. That's not actually what is being taught here by Paul. He's saying, no, the very text itself is inspired. 
It's not just the ideas. So when it says, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He's not, he being Jesus, he's not simply just throwing out some ethereal concept that may or may not be okay. I mean, it was good for the Jews who, was list- who were listening to it. Whether it really applies to us now, well, who could know? It's not at all what he's saying. The very text itself of Scripture is inspired. And so what we have written is inspired. It is what is trustworthy, not just the concepts that may float around, the very text itself. And again, this limits... In fact, it rejects any notion of partial inspiration, of cherry-picking. I like this part, I don't like that part. This bit suits my conscience, this bit doesn't suit my conscience. This bit suits my worldview and what I think God to be like, and this part won't do much. The very text itself of Scripture is inspired. Inspired by who? Well, we see the final word, theonistos, God-breathed, or breathed out by God. This is a claim to the reality that the scriptures are sourced from the very mouth of God. Now you may be thinking, well, I thought that Paul was writing this particular letter to Timothy. Was it not Luke who wrote the Gospel and Acts? Was it not Matthew and Mark and John? Well, of course. But you might like to think of it as the same manner in which you use a pen to write a letter. In such a way did God use the authors of Scripture as mere instruments to write his word? Peter describes in his second epistle that all scripture, sorry, that the holy men of God were moved or were carried along by the Spirit of God. Did they fall into some eccentric trance and just start going off? Well, no. We can see very clearly um, from all of Scripture, that God used their personality, their, con- their context historically, socially, politically, educationally. But nonetheless, it is God who wrote exactly what he wanted to write. And make no mistake about that. Everything that Paul wrote, everything that Mark, that Luke, going back in the Old Testament, that Moses and all the Old Testament writers wrote, every single last bit of it is sourced from God. And it is the very words of God that in the same fashion created the universe. You recall that God spoke and it was. God spoke and it was. God spoke and it was. This is the nature of how he operates. He has to simply speak and it is. Seminary President J. Ligon Duncan notes uh, that Paul is not giving a new theory of inspiration here. He's articulating Jesus' view of the Bible. Just as in creation God spoke the world into being, so by his word he spoke redemption and his redeemed people, his church, into being. By his word he creates and redeems. It is all God-breathed. It is God-breathed. And so what's the, the logical implication of it being? God breathed. Well, we see that Numbers 23, 19 tells us exactly what the implication is. It reads that God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't have to resist the temptation of 
between lying and telling the truth. God cannot lie. God is the utter definition of truth. He is the parameter by which truth in every regard is measured and sustained. And so therefore in the reality that God cannot lie, this book cannot lie. There is not a single lie or inaccuracy in this book. It is God-breathed. All of it is God-breathed. And I could finish the sermon there and we could be done with talking about inerrancy. Of course I'm not going to. But you can have every ounce of confidence that everything you read in here is the truth and nothing but the truth in everything it discusses. Because every aspect of it is God-breathed, sourced from the author of truth. So now we move on to what the Bible is for. This is uh, Paul particularly describing this in this, the latter half of verse 16, where he states that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. It's profitable for four things. You note that Paul doesn't simply say, this book is relevant. This book is a nice guide to touch upon whenever you feel you haven't got it down pat. Relevant isn't too much of a claim. Relevant isn't enough of a claim. Forget the fact that the Bible is relevant. The Bible is essential, folks. And it's profitable. Profitable. And it's interesting to note also this use of the word for. In the Greek he uses the word pros as a preposition and the word means face to face or towards. And it has a nuance of, of, of a depth and an intimacy. And so, he, so by implication of using this word, Paul is saying the scriptures are profitable for giving you a depth, a closeness, an intimacy, a real reality in reproof and in teaching and in correction and in training in righteousness. It's not just going to touch the surface. It's able to completely accomplish these things, is the point that Paul is making here. Okay? And so what do we mean by these particular four goals? Well, teaching, of course, is the impartation or the delivering of, of the knowledge of God and what he's done. The knowledge that God alone is the creator of the universe. That apart from him there is no other God. For the Lord God is one. The knowledge that he is triune. He is one being in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, co-equal with each other and co-eternal. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became incarnate, made in the likeness of man, lived a sinlessly perfect life on sinners' behalves and then died on the cross on their behalves. And then on the third day being raised from the dead. These are the the teachings we're talking about. We're talking about the doctrines of God in all of their counsel. It is profitable, the scriptures are, for giving you every teaching in the Bible, every teaching of God. Secondly, it is profitable for reproof, that is the identifying of and warning against false beliefs and behaviours. If within here we have every 
God-breathed doctrine, every didaskar, every teaching, every truth, then when one has an erroneous belief, or they are living in an erroneous fashion through erroneous behaviour, this book is more than adequate to completely (laughs) reprove that. In love, we are able to go to the wayward brother or sister and say, that's not what the scriptures say. That's not who God is. That's not what God's done. That's not what God's view on this is. In whatever particular matter it may happen to be, this is the ultimate corrector for any wayward belief or behaviour we may happen to have. Thirdly, it's profitable for correction, that is the helping of that wayward brother to return to such a right belief in similar fashion as to what I just said. It is the barometer by which we measure truth and therefore we can know that if we have an erroneous belief, if we have something that either is partially correct or just flat out wrong, we can come to the scriptures with confidence and with humility knowing that God will gently and yet sternly teach us the way of truth. And finally, it is profitable for training in righteousness, that is the exercising of biblical discipleship and instruction in godliness. It is able to guide pastors and elders as they seek to shepherd the flock of God in the ways of the Lord. It is able to guide youth leaders as they seek to disciple the younger members of the congregation It is profitable for parents to teach their children and raise them in the way that they should go. It is profitable for all these things, for training in righteousness. And finally, we'll look at what the Bible does. Verse 17, its usefulness. What I'd like to do is also connect verse 15 here particularly. You might note, going back, the end of verse 15, if this is going to work. Apparently not. Apparently not going to work. That's okay. I'll read it. What we see here is from verses 15 and 17, the claim of what the Bible actually does. We see that in verse 15, it is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it is firstly able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Secondly, in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Two things. And you may notice what these two things happen to be. Salvation. Justification. Wherein God saves the sinner by his grace alone. And where that sinner, by God's grace alone, repents and believes the gospel of, of grace. This is justification where God brings the sinner into right standing with himself and then treats them that way. And we then see that it is good for holy living, for sanctification, for the ongoing process of regeneration in the life of the believer, wherein God continues to mould the new heart of flesh that has replaced that heart of stone where there's an increasing level of holiness in one's life, an increasing devotion to the living God, an increasing passion and love 
for his word and for his people. So it is good for justification and sanctification, for salvation and for holy Christian living. And he shows that the only... Oh, sorry, pardon me. This is what the Bible so fantastically does. Uh, and we see this in Ephesians um, 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. We're seeing again this concept that everything is sourced from God. Our very salvation is sourced from God, is by his grace alone. And so this continued process then of of, of, of sanctification in which the man of God will be complete and equipped for every good work is also, again, sourced from God. And this is particularly where I'd like to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. We've just finished discussing the inerrancy. Let us now finish with the sufficiency, an equally important aspect of the doctrine of Scripture. His specific choice of words here is important. This is going to be a bit of a word study, but it is important because Paul is using specific words to give a lot of weight to what he's saying here in verse 17 in particular. Okay, And so he's used for the word complete. We see there he says that the man of God may be complete. The root word means now, and it's in the sense of the here and the now. He's saying that by connotation that one is ready because you are completely prepared. You have in the scriptures everything you need in life. By the scriptures you are complete. You don't need to go looking for other sources of knowledge of God. Herein lies everything that God wants you to know about him about what he's done, who he is. That was a problem in the, first, in the first and second centuries in particular with the rise of Gnosticism. These false teachers who proclaimed to have secret knowledge, divine access to knowledge beyond the scriptures and a divine connection to the divine one. And the way that you could get this Gnosis, this knowledge is to come to them who have, and they'll reveal the secrets and they'll illuminate your mind, which is rubbish. There aren't many people who would actively call themselves Gnostics these days, but I can assure you this, there are plenty of people who practically are Gnostics. Herein lies the light. Herein lies everything you need. You are able to be made complete through it now because you have it in front of you. And secondly, and further to the aforementioned, Paul's use of the word which we translate equipped, being in the next part, equipped for every good work. A very, very strong word. And it's of much significance to the point that Paul is trying to drive home here. The root word means fitted or made suitable. But what Paul does is he puts a, a prefix onto it and he intensifies the word. Um, uh, think of a, a relevant example. Um, if you were to say someone's, uh, you know, they're a superstar, they're a superstar athlete, well, you're saying they're a superstar, you're adding a, a prefix. This is what Paul's doing. He adds this prefix to intensify the word so that it means that one is entirely outfitted. They're entirely outfitted. This is the word which we're translating equipped. And so what he's doing here is he's stressing 
utterly stressing the end impact of scripture on the receptive believer. Indeed, the Bible entirely outfits each believer to live in full communion with the living God. It entirely outfits. Can you see how the scriptures are sufficient? They are utterly sufficient to do exactly what they say. And so this is why sufficiency particularly is a really important issue which we need to grasp as a church. There is no additional secrets that need to be revealed. Okay? Now, inerrancy throughout church history has been debated. It's inevitably debated in about every generation. And inerrancy, for the large part, especially in here in Australia, is, is settled. But sufficiency, in my honest assessment, is where the battle really wages. One may not openly deny the sufficiency of Scripture, but the practical actions of, any, of an individual or a church, it doesn't matter what scale you go to, can deny the sufficiency of Scripture. And a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture is no light thing, might I add. To say that the Scriptures are not sufficient is inherently to say that God is not sufficient. And again, you're drawn back to the error of saying that God is a liar. Because if Paul here says that the Scriptures are sufficient for salvation and for Christian living and you say that they're not, then you're in a bit of a pickle. We see this, do we not? We see churches, we see organisations that seek to use entertainment, the bright lights, the glitz and the glamour to draw people. We see watered down teaching so as to not offend the conscience. We see half truth but not full truth, the betrayal of a God that is love and his grace and his mercy but God forbid he would ever be a just judge. One who in his own rightful holiness has anger towards the wicked. This is a denial, a practical denial of the sufficiency of scripture. And there's no two ways of dicing it. And I say these things again with the same reason that Paul had to actually encourage us and to remind us that we can have the uttermost confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture. The Scriptures are infallible. There is not one jot or till of error in the Scriptures. And that means that the promises of God for our lives are also without error. And further to that, it is important that we not only just understand but we actually believe and practically live out the knowledge of the sufficiency of scripture you don't have to wait for the next celebrity pastor to come out with their seven steps to this and their five keys to this as if they were to reveal some astounding secret that God hasn't already plainly told you in scripture you don't need to rely on some particular religious guru who thinks that they have a divine connection to God and can just deliver the next prophecy or word into your life and come to them because they have it. 
nothing you're ever going to hear from any self-professed prophet is going to be anything greater than you'll ever get from Scripture. I say that unreservedly. If it's, in, if it's, if it's against Scripture, then the problem is obvious. If it's in line with Scripture, what's the point? We see this in the end of Revelation. The last part of sufficiency is that the Scriptures in themselves are complete. John sternly warns at the end of chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, to not subtract, neither to add from the Scriptures. They are complete. The canon of the Scripture is closed. And for all of these reasons, we can have the uttermost confidence in the Word of God and in the God of the Word. And through His inerrant and sufficient Word, we can know Him, love Him, grow in communion with Him. This is the very Word of God. We as a church must stand upon it as the cornerstone of everything we do and everything we believe. A high view of Scripture is a high view of God. And Blackheath Baptist Church must have a high view of Scripture and thereby have a high view of God. Would you pray? Lord God of heaven, we again humbly thank you for the blessed opportunity it is to hear your very words, the words written in the word of God, your Holy Bible. Father, we thank you for your work, Holy Spirit, as you carried along and inspired the writers uh, to write exactly what you wanted them to write the unapologetic truth and reality of who you are and what you have done to your glory alone. Father, at this time also we thank you for the countless brothers and sisters who came before us, who sacrificed so much in life, in fact their very lives, for the transmission and for the deliverance of this very word, Lord, we understand and we acknowledge and appreciate the fact that your, your word, your Bible has come to us through the blood of the martyrs on an absolute torrent of sacrifice. We merely inherit this word. May we do it gracefully. Lord, may you give us a renewed passion and renewed understanding for all of your truth. Lord, we seek to honour you and to live by your precepts and your commands in this life, Lord. And we know that we cannot do any of this without the power of your indwelling spirit. Lord, by your grace, would you continue to reveal to us the truths that lie therein. Once again, we thank you. We ask for mercy in our daily lives as we approach your holy scriptures. To the glory of God alone, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.
by the power of his illuminating Holy Spirit. We thank you and we honour you. Amen.